Ah. Hi, folks. Uh, I get to, because Mary Chamberlain is delayed and returning from ASCO, I get to introduce Rodwell. Uh, I had nothing to do with her delay, though. Uh, and Rodwell Mabera has been with us for quite some time, but before he came here, he studied uh, at Colby in Maine, where he graduated with both a chemistry and a mathematics uh, degree, uh, uh, Phi Beta Kappa. Um, and actually, while at Colby, he began his research into anti-neoplastics, right? with right. some research on 6-thioguanine and so forth. But then he came here and was part of the and part of the MD PhD program uh, doing his PhD work on uh, globulin uh, gene regulation uh, in Chris Lowry's lab. Um, and then he joined our fellowship and the internal medicine residency where he's been a on that uh, on the the joint residency research track. Uh, and he's been a fellow with us uh, for all this time, and uh, I'm, he's, we're glad that he's going to be sticking around as junior faculty um, after this July uh, with a major focus working with in Randy Noel's lab um, and doing some clinical work. Uh, and I need to point out that he has uh, he doesn't have any finances, no financial interests. <laughs> There's a cup on the way out. Oh yes, he has no financial interests. No, no, that are relevant to this talk, I'm sure. Um, and he will not discuss off-label or investigational use of any product or device, and nor is he receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Brad, thank you, Brad. Anyone? Everyone can hear me. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So as I was going through the this slide saying I have no financial interest. I, maybe we should change this to I wish I had some financial interest and <laughs> someone was paying me for what I do. Um, yes, this connection is not quite. So the reason I put this up here is not to educate anybody, hopefully, uh, because everybody is familiar with sort of clonal selection and sort of our understanding of the um, immune responses. but. As I was walking, you know, home yesterday, you know, preparing for the slides, I ran into one of the grad students that, you know, I uh, got close to, and we got into a discussion about sort of how do we go from, you know, immunotherapy right now to sort of what is the next step from ipilimumab and, you know, drugs like that. And one of the things that he ended up saying to me was, would you rather be the guy that, you know, discovered the clonal selection theory, or you want to be the guy that discovered ipilimumab? And you know, without a doubt, I said, yeah, I mean, I want to be the guy who discovered clonal selection theory. Ideally, I should have said both, because then I'll be rich and I would also be famous. But you know, just to run through this quickly, the theory just states that you know, B cells, particularly when the theory was advanced, and now we know it's the same for T cells, have a repertoire of uh, receptors that identify you know almost infinite number of uh, antigens, and when that cell encounters the specific antigen, it is basically selected for expansion. A sort of very simplistic uh, view that was put forward, you know, many years ago. But I'd like to point out this last point here, which basically says lymphocytes that bear self-recognizing uh, receptors, there is a mechanism for deleting them. 
And that was actually the first instance back in 1957 or so that someone actually mentioned that there was some checkpoint in the immune system that made sure that we didn't react to self. Now we know that that story is actually more complicated. Everyone hopefully knows about the CD80, CD86, and CD28, CTLA4 system, which basically, in addition to T cell receptor MHC engagement, determines whether the T cell response is on response or not based on whether it gets a stimulatory signal through CD28 or inhibitory signals through CTLA4. And it's the integration of those signals that ultimately decides you know, whether the T cell responds or um, goes into energy and uh, is deleted. And more recently, PD-1, pd one and 2 system was added to the story. Why is this relevant? Uh, everybody's familiar with ipilimumab, uh, approved by the FDA back in 2011, uh, essentially based on this uh, understanding of the immune system that you know you have CTLA4, which increases, uh, which suppresses uh, T cell responses, and if you were to block that with anti-CTLA4 antibody ipilimumab, you can get immune system uh, to be activated. And why is you know, why would that lead to responses that, you know, were seen in metastatic melanoma? If you look at this graph here, overall survival over months, comparing the bottom graph, a vaccine, which actually had been shown to be fairly effective, GP100, compared to either a combination or ipilimumab alone, we saw amazing responses that not only were better than the vaccine alone, but were also durable in about 20% or so. This had not been seen before in metastatic melanoma. One of the things that, sort of getting back to my point, was surprising is, you know, why does non-specific activation of, of the immune system sort of lead to these durable responses? And it has to do with sort of the threshold of uh, activation of the T cell receptor. We know that the immune system can recognize and should recognize a lot of the aberrant antigens on uh, tumor cells but tumor cells have developed ways to actually suppress uh, the immune response. And one of the main ways to do that is actually upregulation of uh, CTLA-4, both in some tumors as well as uh, infiltrating T cells. So by relieving that suppression, you can get good responses. And now that story is kind of old. Over the last you know, two years, we've seen the approval of pembrolizumab and subsequently nivolumab targeting the PD-1, uh, PD-L1 axis. And as you can see, compared to chemotherapy in blue, you get more uh, durable responses, as well, more responses to begin with, as well as more durable responses in about 30% of the patients. The approval of both nivolumab and pembrolizumab were based on progression-free survival. Uh, just in the last two days, uh, at ASCO, there was an update to the pembrolizumab story looking at longer term survival all the way up to 36 months, where we see, you know, 38%, 39% overall survival, which again is, you know, completely unheard of in metastatic melanoma. And just briefly to mention nivolumab. So right now as you know, I'm speaking, there's a lot of effort into seeing, you know, what can we do next? How can we improve on, you know, a 40% survival uh, or a 11% survival in the case of ipilimumab? And one approach that has seen success is com combining these therapies. 
we know that CTLA-4 and you know, PD-1 are not completely overlapping in their mechanism of action. So it made sense to put these two together. And as you can see from this seminal study that led to the approval of uh, EP-NIVO combination last year, you get not only more responses, up to 60% compared to 11% with uh, epilimumab, but you also get more durable responses, you know, now approaching 50% uh, by 18 months or so. So that's uh, groundbreaking. And, oops. But one of the things that comes up, you know, as we move forward is, you know, the list of you know, checkpoint regulators in the immune system, you know, has been growing from, you know, what we knew uh, even 10, 15 years ago to, you know, a dozen uh, receptors as well as a dozen, you know, ligands, and that list, you know, keeps growing. And I, you know, draw your attention to VISTA, which has sort of been the focus of our studies here. And as a clinician, and even more so as a patient, how do you choose, you know, what therapy you start with? Uh, what therapy you combine. Right now, there's really no rational approach to doing this. It's basically a matter of what clinical trials are doable. And you can start to imagine sort of what is the cost of actually asking every question that needs to be asked of all these targets that are currently in clinical development. So that brought me to sort of that discussion that I mentioned at the beginning that you want to be the guy that discovered the clonal selection theory because you can sort of think rationally through all these things. Not only do we have, you know, immune checkpoint regulators that are suppressing T cell responses in the tumor microenvironment, but it's actually a very complex balance of, you know, between the tumor expressing immune checkpoint regulators. There's also myeloid-derived suppressor cells, which suppress T cell responses, macrophages within the tumor microenvironment, and I'll explain this a little later, also get sort of co-opted into suppressing T cell responses. And there's a you know, slew of cytokines coming both from T cells, regulatory T cells, uh, tumors, and you know, MDSCs. You know, there's basically this complex you know, soup of cytokines that are you know, pushing T cells to respond in one way or the other. And it is the balance of basically all these things that is deciding whether this T cell actually responds to this uh, tumor or gets suppressed, uh, as in this depiction. So just to sort of give you a brief background. So I've done most of my work to try to address this question, you know, based on VISTA, which is uh, V domain Ig suppressor of T cell activation. This is a protein that uh, Randy Noel's lab discovered here at uh, Dartmouth. And over the last um, sort of three and a half, four years, we've shown that you know this is vista is uh, a negative checkpoint regulator and it is expressed almost exclusively in the hematopoietic compartment and as you can see here you do get some expression uh, in t cells uh, both cd4 and cd8s but most of the highest expression is in myeloid cells there's no expression in b cells and that's just uh, looking at uh, total expression And to show that this is a negative checkpoint regulator, this is looking at soluble VISTA uh, cultured with T cells that are activated uh, with CD3. Uh, and on the x-axis is sort of the CD69, which is an early T cell activation marker. 
And compared to a control IG, you see very nice activation, whereas when you have Vista in the soup, you get suppression of T cell activation as evidenced by CD69, as well as on the right, looking at a slightly different system where you get uh, antigen-presenting cells that overexpress Vista versus uh, a control uh, protein, you get suppression of proliferation uh, based on dye dilution uh, <clears throat> in the right panel there. And then finally, uh, we've shown that Vista blockade actually results in T cell activation that is relevant to the tumor microenvironment. In these experiments, using two different uh, tumor models, B16, a melanoma model, and MB49, a, a bladder model, you can see that compared to the control Ig, which continues to grow, blocking Vista with an antibody leads to slower growth of the melanoma model and actually regression of the uh, bladder cancer model, uh, which is quite impressive. So bringing, up to, bringing you up to my work and sort of how I got into this, uh, one of the first things that was noticed uh, in the lab even prior to me joining was that Vista is expressed on tumor in the tumor microenvironment more so than the rest of uh, these mouse models. So looking at, you know, in this first panel, Vista expression um, in CD45 tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, there was, you know, a significant expression. And then looking by uh, immunofluorescence, you could see this uh, Vista expressing cells in red, which is sort of very few that are not CD11B, but it was mostly the myeloid cells that are CD11B that are expressing uh, Vista in the tumor microenvironment. And just to point out sort of in between sort of this uh, black background is tumor cells, uh, and we do not see any uh, Vista expression in those cells. And then finally, um, sort of slightly jumping ahead, when we actually started to look at you know, tumor infiltrating uh, lymphocytes compared to draining lymph node as well as non-draining lymph node, we saw that it was the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes that actually had the highest expression of VISTA. So this led us to ask the question, you know, what is it about the tumor microenvironment that is driving this high expression compared to even the draining lymph node, which you expect to, you know, by all intents and purposes, to be very similar to the tumor microenvironment. Uh, so to answer this question, um, we used the CD26 bladder cancer colon, colon cancer model. And you basically take the tumor cells, inject them intradermally into the mouse, and then you can follow the kinetics of the tumor. You can you know, use drugs to sort of evaluate um, responses to therapy. And this is a nice model because you, know, you can easily measure the uh, tumor right under the skin. Uh, and at the same time, it gives you a good uh, tumor that you can stain for as well as uh, do immunofluorescence and uh, flow cytometry. So the first observation uh, we had was that Vista is expressed not you know, everywhere in the tumor microenvironment. It was expressed you know, in very patchy focal areas. So it led us to hypothesize that you know, it may be areas that are hypoxic within the tumor that are expressing Vista. 
So we investigated this uh, in this uh, CD, CD26 model. And looking in the first panel, again, it's flow cytometry, looking at vista expression on the x-axis and um, the number of cells that are expressing on the y-axis. As you can see, compared to T cells, both CD3 and CD4, Tregs versus non-Tregs, there's you know, some expression, but not as significant as the CD11B compartment. And within that compartment, it was the GR1 positive uh, CD11B cells that had the highest expression. And I'll come back to the significance of that. And then we used a, another technique to actually track how much hypoxia there is uh, in the tumor microenvironment. And the way we did this was by staining with pimonidazole, which is a dye that basically binds to proteins uh, that are within the, tumor, the hypoxic tumor microenvironment. And then you can come back with an antibody and actually stain where pimonidazole has been. That way you get a sense of which cells are hypoxic uh, by flow cytometry. And when you look um, within sort of the different tissues draining lymph node, uh, the spleen, you see that the tumor CD45 component dimatopoietic cells are more hypoxic than even the draining lymph node um, and let alone the spleen. And this is quantified on the right here uh, in a bar graph where we see very significant hypoxia within the tumor microenvironment uh, CD45 uh, compartment compared to the draining lymph node and the spleen. Next, we asked uh, which cells, you know, by uh, immunofluorescence, where are hypoxic cells compared to vista expressing cells? So this is the single stain for pimonidazole, and we see this sort of patchy appearance of hypoxia. And co-staining the same section with vista antibody, we see that it is mostly sort of this hypoxic area that is uh, highly enriched in vista expression. And then we can merge the two um, images uh, to see, you know, uh, cells expressing vista related to the pimonidazole. And then based on our previous observation, we knew that it was CD11B cells that were mostly expressing vista. So we co-stained with this. And as you can see, all three signals are really uh, merging in the CD11B uh, compartment. So this confirms that hypoxia within the CD11B compartment leads to high vista expression. Um, this is just looking at the same data uh, by flow cytometry, uh, where on the left side is the gating strategy, pimonidazole on the x-axis, CD45. And within the pimonidazole high compartment, you see much higher vista expression compared to the pimonidazole low compartment. If you oxygenate the mice, do you see that's a good question. We did not particularly perform those experiments ourselves. We know that if you track cells from the tumor microenvironment into um, the draining lymph node, for example, where it's less hypoxic, that vista expression does go down. And you know, presumably all these cells are trafficking all the time. It's a very good question. And then <clears throat> we looked at you know, which cells are within the CD11B compartment are expressing VISTA and are these hypoxic cells. And this is um, basically gated on the CD11B pimonidazole, uh, gated on the pimonidazole high gate, 
looking at CD11B versus GR1, and we saw that it is the CD11B high GR1 positive uh, cells that comprise the majority of the uh, hypoxic and uh, vista expressing cells. Whereas when you look at the less hypoxic cells, you get uh, the GR1 negative and sort of small proportion of CD11B positive cells. And the CD11B GR1 positive cells are consistent with mouse MDSCs. So this started the um, investigations looking at uh, MDSCs really the target of sort of hypoxic regulation of VISTA, which <coughs> leads me to this introduction. Um, MDSCs, myeloid-derived suppressor cells, uh, these suppressive cells that really act as a cellular negative checkpoint for um, T-cell responses. In the mouse, they're they described as CD11B GR1 positive uh, cells. Unfortunately, they aren't more specific, um, oh, sorry, they aren't more specific markers for the human uh, component of uh, MDSCs, we know that they are CD11B, CD33 positive, and tend to be DR uh, low or negative. Uh, but this also describes you know, a wide variety of other monocytic cells as well as granulocytic cells. Um, so you do need to have some functional uh, assay to actually prove that the cells you are looking at in the human are suppressive. And Multiple studies have shown that MDSCs expand in variety of uh, disease states, including uh, malignancy as well as infection, where they tend to be profoundly immunosuppressive. And within the tumor microenvironment particularly, they suppress uh, reactive T cells and hence uh, protective uh, to the tumor. And this is a cartoon that actually uh, Jay, a grad student who's been working with me, prepared, which basically sort of describes some of the effects that hypoxia has on uh, myeloid-derived cells. So within the tumor microenvironment, the tumor <coughs> expresses a variety of uh, chemokines that attract myeloid cells. And within the environment, MDSCs and TAMs respond to the CCL12, uh, CL12 in particular, and so you, you get recruitment of the MDSCs, and several studies have shown that hypoxic MDSCs actually upregulate arginus and inos, which are two important mediators of their suppression of T cells. Um, both arginus and inos uh, have been shown to be important uh, for arginus in depleting uh, nutrients within the microenvironment that in turn suppresses T cell responses. And then INOS, on the other hand, acts through sort of a reactive oxygen species uh, pathway within T cells uh, to actually uh, target the T cell receptor itself. So hypoxia not only recruits these cells in the tumor microenvironment, but also activates them to be more suppressive. And then there's evidence that macrophages within the, the tumor microenvironment get converted from an M1 phenotype that tends to be uh, protective um, against tumors to an M2 phenotype that is more uh, suppressive of T cell responses. And then a recent study 
um, actually showed that within the MDSC compartment and a few other myeloid cells, PDL1 is actually upregulated by hypoxia. So putting all this together, hypoxia tends to have this uh, immunosuppressive role within the tumor microenvironment that involves you know, not only recruiting cells uh, to the microenvironment, but also upregulating mediators of suppression. So we wanted to, sh to show at least uh, with VISTA that hypoxia actually has a direct role. And to do this, we used uh, hypoxic conditioning where you take cells ex vivo you culture them within uh, hypoxia, 1% oxygen uh, versus 21% uh, oxygen, which is uh, the normal environmental uh, oxygen concentration. And these experiments uh, were done using uh, human peripheral blood cells. Um, so over hours of culture within the hypoxic versus nomoxic environment, we see that VISTA expression sort of stays low in nomoxia, but is very rapidly upregulated within the first 24 hours uh, in hypoxia. And this is particularly impressive within the MDSC compartment, uh, where we're looking at this CD11B, CD33, uh, MHC2 low uh, population, compared to monocytes, where you do get some activation, but it seems to be more um, because you get decrease in vista expression over time uh, within nomoxia. And so we wanted to ask the question, is this a, a direct effect of hypoxia or are there other things uh, within the culture system that are doing this? And just to give you a brief background, uh, the hypoxia inducible factors, uh, HIFs, are sort of the gatekeepers for the most part in most cells uh, for cellular response to hypoxia. In normal oxygen, if one alpha is bound to VHL um, and gets rapidly degraded in an oxygen-dependent manner, in hypoxia, you get uh, destabilization of VHL, which in turn uh, stabilizes HIF-1 alpha. HIF-1 alpha binds to its constitutive partner, um, ARNT, to go into the nucleus where it directly binds DNA and directs transcription of uh, a lot of adaptive genes uh, such as VEGF. Um... Oh, there we go. And first we looked at uh, the VISTA promoter to see if you know, there's any basis uh, for this hypothesis. Within the human promoter, there is a single putative uh, hypoxia responsive element uh, as depicted here, about 500 bases upstream from the transcription start site. Whereas within the mouse, there's two elements, um, one at around minus 300 and one further upstream uh, from the promoter. To ask the question whether uh, hypoxia or HIFS directly uh, regulates the VISTA promoter, we did uh, first lose luciferous reporter assays, where you clone out the promoter from the genome, you hook it up to a reporter, which basically is a fly, firefly um, luciferous, and then you manipulate the sequence to see if targeting that sequence changes how that promoter responds to uh, different stimuli. And so these are cells, cultured in, uh, cells in culture where you look at what activity you have with uh, a control vector versus uh, a vector that has the promoter. And as you can see, compared to 
normal oxygen, you don't get any response in the empty vector, whereas you get a specific hypoxia response uh, within the vista promoter. This tells me that uh, the vista promoter is responsive to uh, hypoxia. So the, there has to be a transcriptional story to uh, the vista regulation. And then looking at uh, sequences where this CGTG is mutated to a non-specific uh, sequence, you get significant reduction in the reporter activity, demonstrating that this sequence is critical for the hypoxic response. Same thing in the mouse promoter where we looked at these two sequences where you get nice upregulation in hypoxia with the full promoter, whereas deleting or mutating uh, that first sequence gives you a reduction in reporter activity, same thing with the second one, demonstrating that both uh, sequences are relevant to activating uh, the Vista promoter. The one caveat with these experiments is that you can get some artifactual uh, results just based on you know, non-specific sequence that may or may not be uh, relevant in vivo. So next we ask the question in a different way, actually looking at uh, cells in culture and asking the question, does HIF-1 alpha bind to the native uh, Vista promoter? And the way you do this is by immunoprecipitating complexes that have HIF-1 alpha and chromatin in them. And then you uh, identify what sequences are in there. And you can get a sense of what sequences are bound by comparing the relative abundance of each of those sequences. So compared to an irrelevant um, sequence where you don't get enrichment of the sequence after pulling down with HIF-1-alpha, you get very nice enrichment with VEGF, which is a positive control, as well as with VISTA. Uh, basically, you get a close to 20-fold enrichment of the VISTA promoter, which demonstrates that the binding of HIF-1-alpha is uh, relevant uh, in vivo. And then next, we wanted to figure out, so there's HIF-1-alpha, HIF-2-alpha, um, as well as sort of a probably non-functional HIF-3-alpha. We wanted to ask the question whether HIF-1 specifically was responsible for this response. And the way we did this was uh, by silencing HIF-1-alpha using an shRNA, basically an interfering RNA uh, in tissue culture. And this is looking over time at 0, 24, and 48 hours. Uh, compared to the nice response that you get with a control SHRNA in hypoxia, both at 24 and 48 hours, you get basically return to baseline when you have an SHRNA that's targeting HIF-1-alpha, demonstrating that indeed it is HIF-1-alpha that is responsible for the hypoxic response. And same data uh, at the protein level where we're looking at um, in red, the hypoxic response at 24 hours, whereas in blue, you don't have any response in the um, targeting shRNA. And then next, we wanted to ask the question, who cares if you know, we can regulate VISTA you know, on MDSCs and it's completely irrelevant functionally. Uh, so to assess function, we used um, an assay where you basically take MDSCs and you culture them with T cells and see if they are indeed suppressive. Um, 
And so what we did was take um, mice-bearing tumor where you get a lot of MDSCs. And so we harvested those MDSCs based on their uh, markers in the mouse. <coughs> and then using naive T cells uh, from congenic mice, you basically culture the MDSCs with the T cells to see if activation uh, is impaired in any way. And we did this both in 1% and uh, nomoxia. And just to orient you, uh, on the x-axis, we've sort of divided this into CD8 responses versus CD4 responses. And on the y-axis, um, just looking at the wild-type control, which is basically uh, normal T-cells and normal uh, MDSCs, you get a certain percentage of activation uh, based on proliferation marker CD25 expression and CD44 expression. And then when you compare this to uh, cells from a mouse that does not express VISTA, you see that in the CD4 there isn't significant differences, but in the CD8 uh, compartment, you start to see some decline in CD44 uh, CD44 expression, as well as some decline in uh, proliferation. So it showed us that there is at least a hint in, um, in VISTA activity. But this was done in nomoxia. So we asked the same question. All right, so we asked the, the same question in 1% oxygen. And now you begin to see really significant differences where both in the CD4 compartment and the CD8 compartment, you get a significant uh, reduction in proliferation of T cells with the wild type uh, uh, MDSCs, whereas you get relief of that suppression with knockout cells, showing that VISA on these MDSCs within the hypoxic microenvironment is relevant to their suppressive function. And you can reverse that by uh, basically taking out the VISTA. So now we have this you know, nice uh, pathway where we get hypoxic regulation of VISTA on MDSCs, and the MDSCs are more suppressive uh, in the context of VISTA. We wanted to ask the question uh, within uh, samples that are in the uh, tumor genetic database. And this work was done by Jay and uh, Dove, who's an Immunext employee. And what this is showing is that looking at uh, HIF expression, this is all uh, data from patients uh, who had their tumor samples uh, sequenced and uh, Oops. And then you get a sense of you know, how much VISTA expression uh, by RNA-seq versus HIF-1-alpha expression. And as you can see, you get a correlation. And just to give you a sense, you, know, you can look at this and say you know, 0.49R is probably irrelevant. But this is actually fairly significant 
knowing sort of the heterogeneity that went into preparing uh, the samples and sort of the number of patients that went into this. So there is a correlation between if expression and VISTA expression in this uh, cohort of patients uh, with colorectal cancer. And then next we looked at um, whether the expression of VISTA has any relevance to actual clinical outcomes. So all the data was actually reported in the database prior to treatment, um, and there is no control as to what, what kind of treatment patients got. Um, but looking at you know, survival alone, based on you know, either the VISTA low cohort versus the VISTA high cohort, we see that the VISTA high cohort actually had more uh, had worse survival compared to the VISTA low cohort, demonstrating that VISTA expression uh, within those tumors uh, has an impact on survival and potentially on uh, responses to therapy. Uh, and just to get a sort of a deeper sense into, you know, what is driving this, um, this is looking at sort of the impact of the different uh, cell lineages within the tumor microenvironment and how that is related to uh, the VISTA expression. So just to orient you on the x-axis um, is VISTA expression, towards the right is samples that had high VISTA expression, and towards the left is samples that had low VISTA expression. And then looking at what cells comprise uh, the infiltrating uh, immune cells. As you can see, among sort of the significant correlations between VISTA expression and uh, infiltrating cells, it was the myeloid, the myeloid uh, component that was driving the VISTA expression. And so there seems to be a direct relationship between VISTA expression, hypoxia based on HIF expression, as well as the cells that are within the tumor microenvironment which really correlates nicely with our data uh, in vitro as well as in the mouse models, actually showing that it is the MDSC compartment uh, of the myeloid cells that is most relevant in upregulating VISTA uh, within the tumor microenvironment. So <clears throat> to give you a summary, just skip through this. So we showed that MDSCs within the tumor microenvironment uh, rely on HIF-1-alpha to upregulate. These are great when, <laughs> when you can actually advance them. Um, yeah, <clears throat> to upregulate VISTA once they are in the tumor microenvironment. And as I showed with you know, pre-published data, Hypoxia actually recruits MDSCs into the tumor microenvironment. So what you have is not only more MDSCs, but MDSCs that are highly expressing VISTA, suppressing T cell responses. And at least with the colon cancer uh, cohort that I showed, we, should, we have some evidence, at least you know, based on this published data, that this is relevant to actual survival and potentially responses to therapy. And if we could block VISTA, uh, within the tumor microenvironment, this would certainly be uh, clinically relevant uh, for treatment. But where I think sort of this is actually really important is actually 
understanding sort of these pathways that are upstream of negative checkpoint regulators sort of offers a completely different approach to you know what we have so far if we can know what you know pathways are activated for example in response to pd1 blockade or in response to ctla4 blockade we can actually rationally choose what that next treatment is going to be for that particular patient um, and this is sort of the first of uh, hopefully many studies that will sort of start to unravel some of these complex relationships between uh, negative checkpoint regulators, the cells that are within the tumor microenvironment, and maybe the cellular pathways that are, are relevant to suppressing responses. With that, I will check questions. criteria that you use to make the statement that the vista-positive cells are MDSCs, mm -hmm. seems like it does, wouldn't distinguish them from run-of-the-mill neutrophils, which would also be CD11B positive and, and GR1 positive. Yeah, so we, within that... I wonder the... if you could strengthen, you know, you've got data, details you haven't shared with us that would strengthen the assertion that it's MDSC. Yeah, so the, the, the details I, I did not show in here was actually based on morphology. Um, that the MDSCs are more immature compared to neutrophils, so they have different uh, sort of forward and side scatter. So we can differentiate MDSCs from um, neutrophils that way, at least, your, at least in the mouse. But in your, a lot is based on your in vitro, your isolation of these cells from spleen and then in vitro cultures and so on and so forth. Yeah, so the, in that case, we have no way of actually knowing whether we are isolating MDSCs versus neutrophils. We know that MDSCs are responsible for their suppressive function. So I did show that these cells were suppressive, at least in the hypoxic environment, which was the only confirmatory um, way to actually know that we have MDSCs within that isolation. But that's, that's sort of the tough thing right now working with MDSCs. We don't have a way of isolating them with any confidence and sort of purity, um, except for the functional assays. Certainly closing in on it. <laughs> oh yeah, and my hope is sort of within sort of these studies, we get some markers that we can actually use to isolate MDSCs without having to do, you know, functional assay with each experiment that you do. Tom. Although TLA logic arguments are dangerous. <laughs> seems to me that most physiologic systems have evolved for a purpose. Mm -hmm. Can you speculate on why the immune system would have evolved to downregulate itself in a hypoxic tissue? Yeah, so one thought is sort of within uh, wounds, which are sort of a, a prototypical hypoxic environment where you're getting a lot of uh, immune cell infiltrate. In that case, uncontrolled T cell responses could lead to a lot of damage, uh, like reperfusion injury is one uh, classic <coughs> example. And being able to put brakes on the T cell responses is very critical to preventing that. Uh, so that's one thought. I don't think anyone has actually proven that, but it sort of makes sense, um, at least. As a follow-up, um, kind of what in, it's a wonderful studies and really interesting and important. Um, that my teleological answer to that might be a little bit different, uh, in as much as your controls are all PO2 at 20%. Um, uh, so 
that's probably too high um, because tissue PO2s are not running 100 torr, but rather 20 or 30 torr. Mm -hmm. 100 torr might very well be an, an open wound where yeah. you want your inflammatory cells running around and gobbling up bacteria. Um, so maybe they upregulate in very toxic environments and then also downregulate in more hypoxic. And then you would ask the question whether you've gone hypoxic enough because now you're down to around 7 to 8 tor. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's really kind of the cutting edge for tumors. And, you know, real nasty and odd tumor behavior occurs at 1, 2, or 3 tor. Yeah. So it would be interesting to see, I mean, it's a heck of a lot of work, but if you could construct a whole range of, you know, response to different PO2 values, that would be really elegant. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and in fact, through these studies, we, we went from, you know, 1% to 0.1. And, you know, we have newer experiments that use the 0.1% oxygen. Oh, that would be awesome. but, but, but it's, 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 like you said, it's did, a lot of work. Did you hear that? Or did no, you? I did not. Oh, yeah. Uh, was, was we had this whole library of work that we had done at 1%. And, and no, that's a really good point because in tissue, you're sort of seeing the range, you know, certainly not to 21%. It's more like from 0.1 to 10%, if that. Um, Thank you. Yeah. First, congratulations on the set of work you did here as a fellow, and uh, really job well done. Uh, I guess uh, when I was looking at the when you looked at Vista high and low in the colon cancer mm -hmm. and you plotted it out, it looked like the, the Vista high was a very infrequent finding. Was it um, in terms of when you showed the survival curves of those patients? It, you had a lot more. So I'm just wondering whether how often that happens in real life and is that just kind of a, you know, sporadic effect or in, the, in that, you know, as you showed those two curves. Yeah. No, I mean, so in, in real life, the, the Vista high is probably, and Dove, you can help me, it's at least a third of uh, the patients that we were looking at. It was certainly more, there were more Vista low patients than there were because Vista high patients. you had a patients. lot of events yeah. leading to that curve in that one, the one, the Vista the, the high, one, yeah. had very few. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, and, and it was more an artifact of the analysis that we had a limited cohort that we were looking at. Um, and because we couldn't control for the experimental design, we tried to control for a lot of other factors that sort of excluded uh, a lot of samples from that. Um, but just based on a snapshot of the database, it's probably upwards of a third of patients who be Vista High. Oh, yes, Chris. Thank you. So you're finding um, that this is expressed in myeloid, immature myeloid cells. Mm -hmm. How about in myeloid leukemia or myeloid proliferative disorders? Uh, Do from those same cells? That's a good question. I actually did stain uh, a bunch of AML samples. And surprisingly, we do not see high vista expression in those, mm -hmm. um, uh, in those diseases. And uh, some of the sort of hand-waving explanation is uh, sort of if if these cells are able to sort of survive um, in a way that is independent of, sort of their immune function, uh, then they probably don't need to have Vista on them to you know suppress immune responses. 
Uh, but I, I don't have a good explanation as to why AMLs in particular uh, don't have high vista expression. Yeah. Yes, Ken. Yeah. I have not yet. I'm actually uh, starting a project with Kaysukel uh, asking that very question. You know, in patients with melanoma, can we identify, you know, a, a subset of cells that are you know, um, either more hypoxic uh, or uh, high ex expressing of vista and are those MDSCs and uh, vice versa? Do MDSCs in melanoma patients express more vista? But that's sort of an open question right now that should be very interesting. Um, and hopefully I'll have an answer in a few months. So if there are more questions, thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> For those immunologists.